Well, friends, it is a blessing to be here today. I was excited when I was invited to preach today. In fact, I was so excited this morning, full confession here, that I might have been driving a little bit too quickly and I might have gotten a speeding ticket on the way here. (laughs) I promise to let it go, if you will. So uh, that's how I began my morning today. Hopefully things will get better from there. Um, No, I was very excited actually when I was given the opportunity to come and teach, although I didn't realize the significance of the day at first. It's just a couple days after Christmas. And in terms of like a day to come teach, after Christmas is a tough act to follow, right? I mean, Christmas is the greatest story ever told. It's kind of a big deal. We spend an entire season really building up to Christmas, this important event in human history. How do you follow that on a Sunday? What do you talk about next, right? Well, we're going to try to talk about what does come next, at least a little bit. Because Christmas, God stepping into human history, into the story, really is one of the most significant things that could ever happen. In fact, it's so significant that our calendar is based off an estimate of the year of Christ's birth. Now, we don't use B.C. and A.D. anymore, but we used to. And what they meant was that every year before was before Christ. And every year since, A.D. is actually a a Latin term, but it simply means in the year of our Lord. That every year since Christ came has been a year of our Lord. So this year is the 2013th year of our Lord. Next year will be the 2014th year of our Lord. To mark the fact that when God stepped into the story, something new, something different was happening. There's a lot of different things we could talk about that changed in the world when Christ was born. Um, We could talk about his life, about his ministry. We could talk about his death and resurrection. But I think they want to save that one for Easter. So I won't jump ahead too far in the story. Instead, I want to start at the very beginning of Jesus' teaching. In a very short summary that we find in Mark, and if you guys want to follow along with scriptures, you can do it on the screen, or there are some Bibles in the pews. Um, But this is the very beginning of Mark, and it says just this. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Matthew 4.17 also has a really short summary of Jesus' teaching. It just says this, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That short phrase, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is something that Jesus talks about a lot. In fact, over the course of the Gospels, it's mentioned 85 times. I was invited to come and to talk about really whatever was on my heart to share. And I find that most often when I get that invitation, I go back to the same place. Because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and all that Christ said that it was about is something that's very dear to me. Now a kingdom, in its most basic sense, is simply a time and a place where someone's rule or reign or authority is realized. Right? A kingdom is, if you want to think of it physically, is just a dome in which a king has control or reign. And the world has seen many different kingdoms throughout human history. In fact, when Jesus was born, he was born into a vast empire that was a kingdom run by a single man named Caesar. It was large and sprawling, um, and it had all sorts of distinctives around power and prestige, around military might, around wealth. Um, 
And the world was used to kingdoms. And Jesus comes into this large kingdom setting and he begins to talk about a different kingdom. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying that it's near. That it's breaking into history. That in some real way, this kingdom of God where God is in charge, where God's authority and his will are happening is beginning in the world. That it is really truly beginning to be the year of our Lord every year since. Now, the amazing thing about this kingdom that Jesus spoke about is that it was so different. And this is why it's so dear to me, I think, because it's so different than all of the kingdoms that we see in the world. That whereas the Roman kingdom empire was built on military might and power, that this kingdom was was different. And people had expectations about the kingdom of God. In fact, uh, when Jesus was born, he was born into a season of hope and expectation for what God was going to do. People were waiting for God to step into history, to do something different, to establish his reign. But most people imagined that like the Roman Empire. But instead of Caesar, God was on the throne. And God was was issuing the decrees. and, And all of God's people were the people in power and authority. But Jesus steps in and he breaks the mold entirely. He basically tries to get rid of it all. And he goes around saying things that you would never expect. He goes around talking about the kingdom like no other kingdom anyone has ever known. Um, My favorite story about that, we're not going to cover in detail, but it, it involves him going to this dinner party. And Jesus shows up at a dinner party, and dinner parties were a very big deal. Um, who you ate dinner with was sort of a status symbol. It talked a lot about who you were, and if you could eat dinner with rich and powerful people, it sort of raised your status level a little bit. And there was a political game that you could have around dinner. There was positions of honor at the dinner table. And so when you went to dinner, you were kind of positioning yourself in just the right spot between someone who had a little bit more honor than you, but above somebody who had less honor than you. And Jesus shows up at this dinner, and he sees these people sitting in their different spots, and he, he says, you know, when you go to dinner, you shouldn't do that. He says, don't try to sit in the position of most honor. He says, in fact, you might be embarrassed. Because if you sit in a spot that's too high, there's always a chance that somebody more important than you will show up. And the host will come, and he will bring that person into your spot, and you will, in an embarrassment and shame, have to go down to the lowest spot. He says, instead, what I want you to do when you go to dinners is to go and sit in the lowest spot. And then when the host sees you down there, he will lift you up. And then he says in Luke 14, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. From there, he goes on to tell them, in fact, when you have dinner parties at all, don't invite your rich, wealthy neighbors. Don't invite your friends and family. Don't invite the people that you know will pay you back. Instead, when you're having a dinner party, go out and invite the poor, the lame, um, the blind, the sick. Invite the people that you know can't repay you, and then you will have your reward in heaven. So he walks into this dinner party, and he begins to tell them, you guys are doing it all wrong. Just as they're sitting down and trying to step into like a a position of honor, he's saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. And I imagine it probably gets a little bit awkward in the room at this point. 
they're looking around, they're thinking, okay, what do I do now? You know, we can't all go sit in the lowest spot. So, I mean, how does this work? And so somebody speaks into that awkward moment and he just pronounces, you know, blessed are those who get to eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. This guy probably knows that Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God everywhere he's went. And so he says, you know what? I'll just change the subject. Blessed are those who get to eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus takes that moment to talk about the kingdom a little bit more. And he tells another story. He says, you know, there's a guy who throws this dinner party, this great feast, and he invites all of his neighbors. And when the preparations are set, and it's time for everyone to come, uh, he sends a servant out to collect all of the guests, but the guests begin making excuses. They're too busy. Their lives are too full. And, And one by one, they all say, no, I can't come. And so the servant comes back to the master of the house and explains, you know, I'm sorry, but no one is coming. And it says that the master of the house is, is angry. He's upset. And he sends his servant out, he says, into the alleys and the streets to invite anyone who will come. And they do that. And then there's still room. And so he sends his servant out into the far corners of anywhere he can find anyone to bring them all into this feast that is happening in the kingdom. Jesus tells this story as a warning, as a judgment. Essentially to say, yes, blessed are those who are eating at the feast in the kingdom of God, but it's not who you think. In fact, all of the people who think they're invited, they're all acting too busy to come participate in what God is doing right now. And he says this kingdom is going to be for the poor and the sick and the lame and for all of those people who wouldn't otherwise be invited. Maybe my favorite illustration of what the kingdom is of God is like this sort of backwards, upside-down thing is from Matthew chapter 5. Um, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus um, says, Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opens his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, begins to talk about people who are blessed. And in fact, the very first category, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven and what it's going to be like. But he picks all of the people that you would probably not say are blessed. Certainly not in the kingdom that he lived in, certainly not in the world that I live in, right? Like if we were going to make a list of people that you would say are probably feeling blessed, you wouldn't start out with the poor or the poor in spirit. You wouldn't say that the people who mourn are the ones who are blessed. You wouldn't say the meek are the ones who are blessed, right? We would say, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those who are happy. Blessed are those who are healthy. But Jesus is talking about something different. 
And he doesn't say it in sort of a poetic way that, you know, perhaps the, the poor should see their situation differently and realize that they are blessed. No, he's talking about a different kind of kingdom where the poor are actually blessed. That's the most amazing thing, I think, about Jesus' message is that he said all of these crazy things about changing the way the dynamics of the world should run, but he didn't just say it. Everywhere he went, it came true. That everywhere Christ went and the will of God was happening and the kingdom of God was breaking into the world, the poor were blessed. That everywhere Jesus went, those who were mourning found comfort. Those who were meek were getting their fair share. Those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness or justice were being filled with that. This is a short list, but you could go on and on. That everywhere Jesus went, the sick were healed. That the outcast was brought in. That Jesus' ministry, this kingdom, this new thing that was happening, it was blessing those who weren't blessed. It was for the humble, for the meek, for the poor. And it's why everywhere Jesus went, he was surrounded by people. Because he didn't normally eat dinner with the rich and powerful people. He ate dinner with the people that nobody else would. With the outcasts, with the sinners, with uh, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, with the people that no one would be seen at all with. Because that's what this kingdom of God, this new thing that God was doing in the world was about. And not only does he begin this kingdom, but he invites us to participate in it. Right after the Beatitudes, uh, we have the commandment of Christ or, or the invitation of Christ to be salt and light in the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus just gets done talking a little bit about who is blessed and who he blesses, and then he invites us to sort of do the same. He says that we are supposed to be salt and light. Salt is good for taste, right? He's inviting us to be a taste of that kingdom. Now, as Christians, we we long and hope for the day when God's kingdom is established in full, where God breaks in in some sort of final way, and we see that in all the world, the poor are blessed, and this different thing is happening. But here now, we're called to be just a taste of it to people. The people would see our lives, and they would taste it just a little bit. When I was in high school, uh, on a random probably Tuesday evening. My best friend, his name was Ryan. Uh, We were 16 at the time, and we were hungry. And we decided that instead of, you know, going to McDonald's or whatever, we were going to bake a cake. No reason, no occasion, except that we were hungry and cake sounded really, really good. Now, we didn't want to bake a cake from a box. We wanted to do, like, the whole from scratch thing. And so we started putting all of the ingredients together. And you wouldn't think that baking a cake is that hard. But for some reason, I just was unable to read at the time. And you know how the the teaspoon and the tablespoon look kind of the same? So you might put the wrong measurement of something in. Well, the the recipe called for a teaspoon of baking soda. And, you know, a tablespoon is is bigger. It's it's three times the size of a a teaspoon, right? Well, it would make sense if I had accidentally put a tablespoon in, but I didn't. I put a cup in. 
which should have been obviously wrong because baking soda comes in a box that's like the size of a cup. So I was like using like the entire box. And even then it didn't ring any alarms until I put it in there and I looked at the bowl and I thought, that doesn't look right because there's just this mound of baking soda. So I looked back at the recipe and sure enough, I was like, ooh, teaspoon, not a cup. So we had a couple options at that point. We could have started over. We could have tried to scrape as much of the baking soda out or we could just leave it. And we were young and bold and we thought, all right, this is going to be the new thing. Baking soda cake. And I knew that baking soda was like, did something to kind of make the cake like rise and look pretty. And I was like, this is going to be a very beautiful cake. Lots of baking soda. And so we finished it and we baked it and it came out and it looked amazing. It rose and it was just beautiful. And, and we actually took the time, I don't know why, to put like nice frosting on it and got it all ready. And then we cut the cake and we took a bite and it was disgusting. I mean, it had really no flavor of its own, but it had like this chalky, like Alka-Seltzer thing where it would fizz in your mouth. And it was really good for like practical jokes. Hey, want some cake? And they see the cake and it looks great and they can't help themselves and they bite in and just, it's gross. That's the way life is for some people, right? They're chasing after this life that they think is going to be this thing that they bite into it, it's gonna be so satisfying. And they build up a life that might look delicious and they'll dress it up with all kinds of frosting. And when when the time comes, though, for them to enjoy the life that they have set before themselves, they realize it has no taste. It's lacking in all flavor. In those sorts of situations, Christ is inviting us to be that flavor, to be that salt. So the people would look at us and say, wow, that's what life tastes like. So they might know that kingdom of God, that different thing that's happening in human history through the taste of the life that we live. That same year in my life, actually, I had kind of a significant adventure for me. Uh, My friend Ryan, his dad was a pastor at a church in Richfield, and we would go on Wednesday nights really early so we could get some extra work done, and we'd just sort of wander the halls. And this church in particular used to be an elementary school. And... Uh, the four of us are, are walking through the halls when a friend of ours comes around the corner. His name was Jake, and Jake is one of those guys who is an outdoorsman. He's always outside hunting, fishing, all those kinds of things. And he comes around the corner on this particular day with a headlamp on. And, I mean, that's odd and unusual to just walk around with a headlamp, but that was Jake, you know? It's whatever. He probably got it for Christmas. Who knows? But he's also kind of sweaty and dirty, and we're like, Jake, what, what were you doing? And in the sort of nonchalance that you can only pull off when you're in high school, it's like, yeah, just exploring the tunnels underneath the church. Well, he had our curiosity, right? And so as we, we pressed him for answers, he took us to this back corner room, this elementary school room, and he peels back a corner of the carpet. And sure enough, there's a trap door there. And when you open the trap door, um, there is this sort of cement series of tunnels that run underneath the church. I don't know if they were originally for ventilation or for plumbing or what they were, but all I could see was adventure. And we knew that we probably weren't allowed to go down there, so we kind of made a pact. We're not going to touch anything. We're not going to break anything. In fact, there's a switch right as you come in, and I wanted more than anything to flip the switch, but I knew I'm not going to touch anything. So we go down, the five of us now, on hands and knees, and we're crawling through these tunnels. 
And there's all sorts of cool, interesting things down there, at least I thought so. There's newspapers from 30, 40 years ago from where someone had left it when they were doing some maintenance. There's like little air ducts into classrooms where generations of kids have forced pencils through, and now there's just a giant stack of pencils. But there's kind of some dangerous things too, which made it even more fun, I thought. There was, you know, like hot water pipes on either side every once in a while. You couldn't touch them. You'd burn yourself. Or there was nails that had been pounded into the ceiling, and they're kind of rusted and whatnot. And every once in a while, there'd be a drop-off. But we're, we're making turns, we're making progress, and we're having a grand old time, led by Jake in the front with his headlamp, when he finds another trap door. We're trying to figure out where this one comes out. Is it in the sanctuary? Is it in the link? Where is it? And so he chose to open it, and it doesn't move. Our natural response, again, as high school boys, is to make fun of him for being too weak to open the door. So, Jake throws his entire body weight into the trap door, which still doesn't move. But what does happen is the headlamp on his head slides up and hits the ceiling and goes out. And suddenly we're in these tunnels in total darkness. A couple minutes later, Jake is able to coax a little bit of light out of this thing, but he then like takes off and he's around the corner. He just leaves the four of us behind. And we all had very different reactions to this. In the front was my friend Ryan, and Ryan had like a little watch with Indiglo. And he's like, guys, I got this. And he's leading the way by the light of his Indiglo watch. We weren't going very fast, obviously. Behind Ryan is my friend Jeff. And Jeff is just sort of silently very afraid I think he was a little claustrophobic to begin with. This is now an adventure that he no longer wants to have. And so he's just very quietly holding on to that fear and hoping to get out. Behind Jeff is me, and I have the opposite reaction to Jeff. I think this is the greatest thing that has ever happened in my life. I'm convinced we'll be stuck down there for a day, which means I won't have to go to school the next day. And, which means we'll probably be found and ended up on the news, and I'll be famous for a little while. It's going to be awesome. Behind me is my friend Brian. Brian is one of those just go-with-the-flow sorts of people, and he's unfazed by this entirely. He's just like, okay, whatever. And we're making our progress through these tunnels, and everything is fine and dandy until we hear from the back of the line a soft thud, and then Brian cry out. And we ask him if he's okay, and he's a little confused at first, and then he says, well, yeah, I think I hit my head. I think I'm bleeding. Brian, those are, those are yes or no questions. Either you hit your head or not, either you're bleeding or not. He said, well, yeah, I hit my head and, and my face is, it's all wet. I think it's blood. So we passed the Indiglo watch back and, and sure enough, his face is just covered in blood. And now this goes from like a fun adventure or this thing where we're getting our own way to, to like this panic moment, this crisis moment. Very luckily for us, we were just around the last corner and we saw the light streaming into the tunnel marking the entrance. And we made our, our way as fast as we could to get out. We pulled Brian up out of there. And by now we know that we're probably going to get in trouble. Someone's going to find out about this. Brian's covered in blood. And we, we pulled these, these paper towels and we start to wipe him off. And luckily, the, it was a scratch about that big. For some unknown reason, I think it had caught a zit on his forehead actually. It was just bleeding <laughs> everywhere. But now we know we can't hide it anymore. And so my curiosity gets the best of me. And I go back to that switch at the beginning and I flip it. And the whole tunnels are filled with light. It was a fun adventure, but I think it's also a really great illustration of what life can be like. Life can be a sort of a dark place, and it can be full of, of adventure and wonder, but it's also full of danger. 
and difficulties. And people have different reactions to the life that we live in this dark place, right? Some people are trying to get by on the light that they can muster, little tiny indiglo, and they think, okay, I've got this. I can handle this on my own. Some people are aware of the dangers, like my friend Jeff, and they're almost paralyzed by the fear. Some people think that the dangers are exciting and fun, like I did on this particular occasion. Some people are totally oblivious to the fact that they're walking in a dark place until something happens in life. When tragedy strikes, when something difficult or hard hits a person's life, all of a sudden it becomes very obvious that the world is dark and that they need light. Christ invites us to be that light to a dark place to take the light of the life that he has given us and to let it shine so that people will see that in the darkness that they live in and they would glorify God. I had a teacher in college that would say it this way, that we are called to be a sign and a foretaste of the kingdom of God that is coming. That kingdom that had begun about 2,000 years ago, When people encounter us, they would get a taste of it. They would catch a glimpse of it. They would see and taste and experience it in its beginnings now. As we look ahead to New Year's, to the 2014th year of our Lord, my hope and prayer is that that would be true. That that kingdom of God would be known in this place. That when people encounter us, the poor would find that they're blessed that those who mourn would be comforted, that those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and justice would be filled with it in this place, that the kingdom of God would come and happen here, that we might be salt and light. So as you think forward to your new year and you're making your, your new year's resolutions, I would invite you to consider that. Who can you provide a taste to? Who do you know that needs a little bit of that light? And is your life reflecting that in a way that people can see and can taste what God is doing? I would like you guys to pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you are and all that you have done. For your kingdom, your very different kind of kingdom, not for the rich and the powerful, but for all, for any who are willing to humble themselves so that they would be exalted in your kingdom. And God, I pray that your kingdom would be known here in this place, that the poor would know that they can come here to be blessed, that they would taste that kingdom, they would see it in everything that we do. God, I ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done this year in this place now. In your name we pray.